Please rise for the reading of God's word. This morning's scripture reading is taken from 1 Samuel 10, verse 20 through 24. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul's son of Kish was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. You may be seated. Thank you, Elijah. A bit unfair of me to give you the names of clans and tribes and whatever. So you did good. You did good. One of the things that I might find least satisfying is a movie or a book with an unhappy ending. When the central conflict does not get resolved in any meaningful way. When, uh, if you ever read a Thomas Hardy book like Tess of the D'Urbervilles, um, all the central characters by Bookshand have all had a series of tragedies occur and things do not and well. Today in our look at 1 Samuel, we come to uh, the story of Saul, what I think is the most tragic story in the whole Old Testament. It does not end well. Some characters in the Bible were bad and stayed bad. Some characters were good and became bad. Some characters were bad and had turnaround and became good. But I think in the whole Old Testament, this is the only story of one who started good and went south, bad. Um, Saul ends up uh, on, on top, rags to riches, on top, and ends up committing suicide at the end of a book, a paranoid and a violent man. No one had as bright a future as did King Saul. So consider his story. We first meet him in 1 Samuel chapter 9. And even before he does anything, we're given a physical description. And it's pretty impressive. Okay, Guys are jealous. Ladies swoon. He is young. He's tall but not gangly. He's dark, being a Middle Eastern guy. And he is handsome the most handsome guy in the whole country. It's like he walked in slow motion. Some donkeys belonging to his, father's went for, to his father went missing, and so Saul, with a servant, was sent out to locate them. And they looked unsuccessfully for three days, and finally Saul gives up. Come on, let's go back, or else Dad will start worrying about us. 
But the servant says, well, just there's a man of God in the next city, so let's find him and ask him. Maybe he knows something. So they get up directions to go see the man of God, who is, of course, Samuel. Now, in the previous chapter, chapter 8, Israel has demanded a king. So God has told Samuel to watch out for the man God has chosen. So when Saul approaches him, God says to Samuel, see the tall guy? That's him. So Saul comes up to Samuel and says, where is the man of God? Samuel says, you're looking at him. He invites Saul to a special religious meal, and he tells Saul that the donkeys are fine, and he tells Saul that he is the one, Saul is the one, that all of Israel has been waiting for. Saul doesn't get it. See, he's a Benjaminite from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, At the end of the book of Judges, maybe a century or so ago, Israel has waged a civil war, 11 tribes versus one tribe, Benjamin. And the occasion for the war was the rape and murder of a woman in a town called Gibeah of Benjamin. And in that war, Israel decimated Benjamin from 26,000 warriors to 600 warriors. So when Samuel says to Saul... All that Israel desires is wrapped up in you. Saul respond, what are you talking about? I'm from the least, the smallest tribe in all of Israel. And by the way, Saul's hometown was Gibeah. But Samuel says, trust me. So they go to dinner. Saul had given a place of honor. And the next morning, as Saul sets out for home, Samuel anoints him and says, you shall reign over the house of Israel. And as a sign this, this, uh, this is a word from God, Samuel says that Saul will meet certain people doing certain things at different points as he travels home. And he does, in fact, meet these people. This is a pretty eventful day in Saul's life. A week ago, he was an unknown young man Now, he has had the place of honor at a meal hosted by Israel's most famous man. He has been anointed king. Wow. It seems like Saul is keeping it quiet. And I'm, I'm not sure what he could do. It's not like he could say, hey, Samuel anointed me king, so follow me. No, it's Samuel's move to make it public, which he does. Samuel calls all of Israel. He says, okay, it's time to answer your request. Remember, though, that this is not necessarily a good thing. We're only doing this because you have rejected God, who has saved you every time you counted on him. So this is second best. But you wanted the king, so here you go. So as you read this morning, they cast lots among Israel, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken. They cast lots among the tribe of Benjamin, and the clan of Matri was taken. They cast lots among the Matrites in the family of Kish, and then the Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. But they can't find him. Saul? Bueller? Has anyone seen Saul? God says he's hiding among the baggage. 
hiding? <laughs> really? He's either humble or afraid. And I think either is good in this situation. To be the anointed king of God's people is a massive responsibility. Not just to be a king, which is a huge enough responsibility, but to be a king of God's people from the, through whom the very God of all things would reveal himself to the surrounding nations. So for how many people here, and you can put up your hands, is public speaking your number one fear? Most of you are lying. How many of you hate doing things publicly and receiving public attention? When you have the opportunity to do something in front of everyone, you want to run and hide. Aren't you self-conscious when it's publicly declared that you will be the one who reign over a million plus people? I hate it when that happens. So Saul is hiding. And they bring him out and Samuel puts him on display in front of everyone. Look at him. God's chosen. There was no one like him in all the people. And the people cry out, long live the king. And Samuel performs a little ceremony, rich with meaning. He tells the people the rights and duties of the king. He writes them in the book and, quote, lays it out before the Lord. Maybe just in front of the people, pray the prayer of, of commitment, of consecration to this decision. This is how our kingship will look, O Lord. And at the end of this very momentous day, dot, 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 he sends them home including Saul. And next time we see Saul, he's driving the John Deere on the family farm. That's two times that Saul has gone home after being made king. First privately by Samuel, and then in front of all the people. And he still goes home to Gibeah to work on the farm. But with him goes some men of valor, the Bible says, whom God had touched and there were also some naysayers who snorted and said, it takes more than good looks to save the people. And Saul holds his peace. And then comes chapter 11. The young, tall, dark, and handsome Saul explodes on the scene and becomes an overnight national hero. It is not just proclaimed to everyone, but is acclaimed by everyone as king. And what happened was this. As the Philistines had previous, previously encroached on Israel from the west, though, though, so the nation of Ammon was encroaching from the east. Okay? The Ammonites, under a man named Nahash, maybe the king, went in and laid siege to the Israelite town of Jabesh-Gilead. And the men of Jabesh give up and say to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will be your servants. Okay, it's better for us to have, better you to have us serve you and it's certainly better for us than if you slaughtered us. So Nahash says, okay, on one condition. I will gouge out everyone's right eye and bring shame on all Israel. It's like he's saying to Israel, I'll pick on your little brother and just watch you stand there too afraid to do anything. 
So then the men of Jabesh Gilead make a request that makes no sense for Nahash to accept. Hang on for seven days. We send word out to all our nation. If no one comes to save us, we'll surrender. Now, I wonder why Nahash would agree to this. It must be arrogance. Any army that the Israelites raise are no match for the Ammonites. So why not? Bring it on, he says. And when word comes to Saul's town, 10 or 20 kilometers away, the people weep and they wail. And when Saul comes in driving his team of oxen from his day on the farm, and he hears what is happening at Jabesh Gilead, this is his moment. The Spirit of God rushes, rushes on him. Saul's anger is whipped until it burns white hot. How dare Nahash shame Israel in this way? Saul cuts up his oxen and says, carry these parts throughout Israel and tell everyone that who, whoever does not come to me and to Samuel will do the same to his oxen. And the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and within a couple of days, an army of 330,000 had gathered with a young, handsome farm boy at their head. And Saul sends a message to Jabesh Gilead, saying that by noon tomorrow, you'll have deliverance. The next day, Saul divides his army into three divisions, moves in, and crushes the Ammonites crushes them. It's a slaughter. And the Ammonites who managed to escape are so few that no two of them are left together. This is a spectacular victory for Israel and for Saul. And when Israel first asked for a king who will go out and fight our battles, they said, they got what they asked for in a big way. And so Samuel summons the people together one more time to make Saul king. And once again, the people come together, and before God, they crown Saul as king. He is now, in everyone's mind, King Saul. Young, tall, dark, and handsome, and now an effective warrior king, Saul is a complete package. Golden boy, I call him. He has risen to the top with the support of Samuel and the help of God. He's the first king of Israel. It's hard to imagine a better start. It's hard to imagine a start more impressive than this. What could go wrong with a king like Saul? Right? But he went so very wrong. And we'll trace his decline in just a few weeks. But eventually, Samuel feared for his life at the hands of Saul. God turned against him. And why, for a man with such promise, does his story end so tragically? It's not unusual, though. Why do pastors fall into sin and lose their ministry? Why do husbands and wives begin by pledging love and faithfulness before God end up divorcing 
at huge cost to their families. Why are churches, who should be the epitome of unity, nevertheless marked by conflict, eroding their very witness to Jesus? Why? It's not about the absence of the work of God, as Ron told us. The Spirit of the Lord rushed on Saul, not once, but twice. God publicly chose Saul as king, gained him an incredible military victory. It's not because God has removed himself from the picture. So why does it happen so often that good start? Because deep inside of us is something that drives us. And this thing can be good or bad. It can drive us toward life or toward death. And that thing is something the Bible calls the heart. The heart is the motor of our lives, is the seat of our passions, of our wills. It's a part of us that no one sees. But they see the fruit. And even though Saul started so gloriously and probably reigned well for many years, his heart over time was revealed to be entirely self-absorbed. He was increasingly selfish. He became violent when he didn't get what he wanted. Had an inflated megalomania. And as I said, he ended up paranoid and committed suicide in battle. What a bookend to a career that started in triumph on the battlefield. The Bible says, guard your heart for it is a wellspring of life. That is not an overstatement. The state of your life reflects the state of your heart. If your heart is healthy, your life will be healthy. If your heart is unhealthy, if you had not guarded it, that too your life will reveal. The truth will out. Garbage in, garbage out. There is no single greater priority in your whole life than the simple three-word statement, guard your heart. Guard your heart. How is your heart? How's your heart? Do you guard it? I'm not saying you have to be perfect. That's not the point. The wonderful thing about Christianity is that God has made provision for our imperfection, for our sin. Okay? As Christians, sin does not threaten our salvation any more than our goodness earns our salvation. But the state of our heart has tremendous impact on our lives, on our relationships. And even though the Spirit of God fills us, not just comes upon us from the outside. And even though in Christ we are able not to sin, and we are. Sin is always by choice. And I often at least do. Even though God does and can speak to us, we can choose to increasingly learn to recognize his voice and follow it, or we can choose to ignore it, do what we want, and eventually we won't hear it at all. 
in Christ, God has given us a new heart, but we can still choose to guard it or not. In every choice we make, we can decide to take the low road or the high road. Are you married? You made vows before God. That's a pretty big deal. So are you guarding your heart? Are you seeking your interests and not just those? Oh, yeah, seeking your interests or those of yourself, spouse. Are you considering breaking your promise before God and getting out? Are you guarding your heart? Are you single? Do you guard your heart, being careful of what you let into your mind? Do you live for yourself or for the Lord? Everyone, do you honor your parents? Men, do you honor women? Or do you sometimes say, her husband is lucky? Do you forgive or have a right to be offended? Are you generous or is your money your money? And please, this is not to say that unless you give it all away, it is stain on your character. Some give it all away so they can be thought of as generous. It's self-serving. doesn't come from a guarded heart. And some pretty wealthy people are behind the scenes generous, but no one knows about it, and they prefer it that way. It's not about what you do, it's about why you do it. Guard your heart. It's all about the heart. If you guard your heart, your actions will follow. I love the line in the movie Fireproof, where a guy says, don't follow your heart, lead your heart. I love that. Lead your heart. Guard your heart. And eventually the kingdom, which would have been for Saul, a dynasty, was taken from Saul and given to David, a man after God's own heart. David, another farm boy. David, also handsome. David, also victorious over the enemies of God's people. David, anointed by Samuel, But David, who never took his kingship for granted, David, who realized that his kingship was a gift from God that God could take away at any time, and David was okay with that. David is the key Old Testament figure that points to Jesus Christ, the king of God's people. What does Christ's kingship look like? Downward mobility. He did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And even as Saul, who tried really hard to do the opposite, had the kingdom taken away, Christ, because of his humbling, was exalted by God and given the name above every name so that everyone will call him Lord. The king is a servant. The king dies for his people. Jesus died. 
bearing God's just and pure judgment of sin on our behalf, that we might be restored to right relationship with God. The king is humble. That's real kingship. That's the kind of kingship that wins the allegiance of millions of people throughout history and across the world. And God's great work in each of us is to conform us to the likeness of Christ, his son, whom he loves. And we can partner with him or rebel against him because there are only two choices. God gives us the ability to choose to showcase the character of Christ or not to. To guard our heart or not to. And for some choices, in your heart, you know, and God, even if no one else knows, you know why you choose what you choose. Why do I preach? Why do you serve others? Why did you buy this or that? Why did he respond to his kids this way? Why did she take that job? I don't know. Only you and God know. Guard your heart. Have a good ending. Don't forfeit the great work of God in your life. Love. Serve. Let the character of Christ that God is forming in you drive your choices. And if you do, if you make this your habit, a cultivated habit, but your habit you will be blessed by God. You will be changed by God. You will be conformed to the likeness of the Son of God. And isn't that what we all want? Finish well. Finish well. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, God. It's such a hard thing often to learn to guard our hearts, to choose well. It's so hard not to just think of our own likes and wants and preferences. Help us, please, by your grace, convict us to look to Jesus, to choose like Jesus to have the character of Jesus arise in us. And we would look forward to how you are blessed in times like that. So Lord, please just bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.